Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Today's episode of Gravity concerns water privatization and resistance in South America. The United Nations Development Program in its Human Development Report in 2006 noted, and I quote, the scarcity at the heart of the global water crisis is rooted in power, poverty and inequality, not in physical availability. And this is unfortunately well exemplified by South America. It is the world's most water-rich continent with 20% of the world's freshwater supply, as well as a continent with the world's highest income inequality, which has resulted in South America being in practice water poor, with one in six of its population lacking access to clean water and sanitation. South Americans also pay some of the highest water rates in the world. The dire situation has been exacerbated by water privatization in the region since the 1990s, the proliferation of which has been in part imposed by the Structural Adjustment Policies, or SAPs, of the world's financial institutions, including the IMF and World Bank. In 1998, for example, the World Bank conditioned a loan of $25 million to Bolivia to refinance water supply and delivery in Cochabamba. Agua Sultanari, a Bechtel subsidiary, took over the city's water service in 99 and immediately hiked up rates nearly 40%, in some cases as much as 200%. It also prohibited Conchabambinos from collecting rainwater. Tens of thousands of people took to the streets to protest, coordinated by Coordinadora de Defense de Agua y la Vida, the Coalition in Defense of Water and Life, led by Oscar Oliveira. The Cochabambinos, united, prevailed, and Bechtel left, albeit it sued Bolivia for lost profits in a closed international arbitration under an investment treaty between Bolivia and the Netherlands, where it had to establish a holding company to obtain standing to do so. Later, in 2005, the people of La Paz united and prevailed over the privatization of their water services by a subsidiary of the French water giant Suez. Resistance to privatization has led several Latin American countries to amend their constitutions to recognize the right to water, including Uruguay and Bolivia. However, the constitutional amendments have had little practical effect and state-run water services have not delivered clean, reliable, accessible and affordable water to the South American people. Concha Bambinos, for instance, kicked out Bechtel only to have similar problems with the state-run water supply. However, throughout South America, grassroots movements are establishing a third way. Rather than state-run services, community-owned and controlled water and supply services. For instance, the Bolivian town of Sebastián Pagador established a collective in 1990, which continues to this day and provides its people water for 17 hours a day for $3 a month. While there are infrastructure and supply issues, the people are directly participating in resolving these issues for the good of the whole community. With me today to discuss these issues and more, I have water warrior and water commons organizer Marcela Oliveira. Marcela was one of the leaders of Coordinadora de Defense de Agua y la Vida, leading the Conchapabinos' resistance against privatization of their water supply in 2000, and in 2004 helped develop the Red Vida Citizens Network as part of her work with the Water for All campaign for Food and Water Watch. Red Vida seeks to establish increased South-South cooperation and establish public-public partnerships in its aim of producing community-owned and controlled water sourcing and delivery services throughout Latin America. Welcome to Gravity, Marcella. Well, thank you very much for having me, Alexandra. So you're the coordinator of the Red Vida Network. Can you please tell me a little bit about the establishment of the organization and your work? We are a an, an, you know, water justice inter-American network. Um, we um, uh, decided to 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 um, to get together 
um, in 2004 because we realized that there was a lot of, um, you know, the water movement in general is very well organized, but we saw that on that particular time there was more communication between north and south than south-south. So that's when, you know, we decided to um, create this network and um, to speak about what was going on in our countries in our own language, in Spanish, and uh, in some cases Portuguese too. And uh, so we got together in El Salvador and, um, and several organizations there from Colombia, Uruguay, Argentina, Bolivia, um, Costa Rica, um, you know, decided um, that it was about time to, to do something about what was going on in our countries in relationship to water. So what is currently going on in your countries uh, with respect to freshwater resources? South America is the wettest continent on Earth. It has 20% of the world's global runoff uh, from the Amazon basin alone, four of the world's 25 largest rivers and some of the world's largest lakes. And yet it really, when we look at access to clean water and sanitation, South America, the wettest continent on Earth, is falling behind. Yes, it, as as you said, we are we have been very blessed with water, but that didn't mean access to water. Around the nineties, um, there was this huge um, wave and push for uh, the privatization of public services, and that's when um, you know we we decided to that we should get together to defend our our uh, water utilities. Um, but um, we are, you know, almost um, 10 years um, or in some cases 15 years later and the situation hasn't ch- changed too much. Um, there is no the typical um, water privatization of water utilities, but there are other problems certainly that are coming. Um, as everybody knows, um, these policies uh, for privatization of the water utilities have failed. Uh, not only in Latin America, but in the world in general. And right now, um, there is a wave, a new wave of remunicipalization of public services, for example. But um, but the problems are, um, you know, that this doesn't mean at all that the privatization is not happening. Um, there are um, new ways or new customs that um, the privatization is um, uh, is. Uh, happening. Uh, for example, um, there is a, a, an increase in the uh, privatization of water sources, for example, or the pollution of our water sources because due to uh, extractive industries um, or our governments are um, doing what they call public-private partnership that for us is just another way to privatize um, our water utilities and um, whatever it's left that is public. So there are, um, you know, all these things happening. And, um, and you know, we thought that, um, that uh, starting the, you know, after the 90s uh, and when even the World Bank admitted that uh, privatization was a failure, um, you know, we know, um, we thought uh, the situation was going to change. And especially when um, we had um, all these very progressive governments also in our region, um, we thought that the, the situation was going to change, but that hasn't happened. Uh, and more than that, I, again, I feel like uh, 
like you know water movements all over america are still are still fighting for for access to to clean water going back to you said in the 90s the um the privatization push started and this was impelled from above by the fact that uh, the structural adjustment policies were put on countries by the world bank and the imf in order to secure more loans and one of one of these instances was in your hometown in Cochabamba, where Bechtel, a subsidiary of Bechtel, actually took over the water supply. But the people were victorious. The, the water warriors were victorious in pushing Bechtel out. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how the people were victorious over Bechtel in that instance and what we can learn from that today? Yes, um, you, you, you're right. Uh, on, on, um, Bechtel came to my hometown, Cochabamba, which is the, um, on the, or on that time was the third largest city in Bolivia. Uh, but it didn't come just, um, you know, all these neoliberal policies didn't come, didn't were just pushing for, for uh, privatization of, of public utilities, but they were also uh, creating a whole legal framework and which you know every uh, to facilitate uh, the commodification of public services. So we started uh, with the mines in Bolivia, and then it went to airlines, railroads, and uh, finally the last uh, the last thing that was left there to to be sold was water. So uh, we organized ourselves. Uh, we decided that uh, that was not going to happen there because um, uh, water is something that, um, you know, it's a, it's a very basic thing. You know, it's not like any other, um, any other service. So we organized ourselves for several months and uh, we carry on mobilizations. We did a lot of uh, civil actions and uh, you could say we have uh, won, but I, I feel like um, um, it has been more uh, uh, what the Equatorians say, we won, but we lost. Uh, because mm, 16 years later, we still are not having um, access uh, uh, to quality water. Uh, there is a s- severe drought uh, in 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 our country. Uh, do do several things, you know, um, climate change, but also because the economy of our country is based on extraction, and uh, in certain way, the government is prioritizing uh, the oil and gas industry over over. Uh, water for human consumption or for nature. So, and and you know the public company um, that that returned to our hands um, after Bechtel, uh, it stay in certain way um, still in the hands of the state and not on the hands of the people. So when 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 we're talking about and you know this is a reflection that came several years later is that what does mean exactly public? It means public when the state is in charge of that, or is when the people is in charge of that. And we fought in April two thousand for we the people to be in charge of that, and that didn't happen. Uh, it went back to the hands of the state, and it hasn't been handled with transparency and uh, uh, accountability to the people. 
so that's why what we we believe when um, there are all these um, remunicipalizations of public utilities that are happening in Argentina or Paris or other places, uh, we also have to fight for the democratization of these um, services, not just reclaiming the uh, the ownership of them, but also reclaiming a better management of them, and where you know the community, the organized communities, can participate in some way in the management of of these entities, because otherwise, you know, we are we, what we are seeing in in many of these public utilities um, in in our countries is that. Uh, the corporatization of them. So they belong to the state, but suddenly they start to act as private companies. Um, so anyway, we're, we're still struggling in Cochabamba. It's not over. And people are still, you know, organizing uh, around that. Whoever thinks that uh, the struggle for water, um, it's, it's just one time and then it's over. It's not like that. I feel like uh, we're living times when, you know, we have to be uh, all the time um, organized around that and, and looking at what's happening in, in our cities and communities. Now, with respect to democratic control of water resources and delivery of substantive community control, now in 2009 you established uh, the, the Platform for Public and Community Water Systems for public-public partnerships. Now, can you tell me a little bit about public-public partnerships and your work there? Yeah, well, that was actually a, a response to uh, the, the policies from the World Bank that were talking about public-private partnerships. So we said, well, no, that's another you know way to privatize our, our water utilities and we can do something else that is different, that is based in solidarity and reciprocity under the idea that everybody has something to share and something to learn and something to teach. So we created this platform in the region that is um, trying to um, establish, um, to be like a, like a, a place where um, some of these water systems being these ones public or managed by the community can get together and exchange uh, technology, knowledge, uh, again, based on, on the principles of solidarity, uh, non-profit, and all those values that, that have been forgotten by our governments or, you know, by the corporations that want to uh, have some profit from water. So it, is, it has been a, a long trip because uh, it wasn't easy to establish something like that. We uh, lack of funds, but we have found help on the way too. And uh, we have um, done like around 14 of these exchanges some of them internationally and others are more locally, like in Colombia and Bolivia, we did um, several exchanges uh, among water utilities inside of these um, countries. But we have done also uh, around four uh, international exchanges. One of them involved the, um, the public utility in Uruguay also and um, a water cooperative from Bolivia and, and two rural uh, water systems in Colombia. So we're um, very hopeful about the work we're doing. Uh, we know, um, again, it's an alternative to um, other platforms that are, are 
are, are being established and that they have more resources and more funding, uh, like the uh, GUOPA, for example, that is an initiative from the UN, uh, but where you know um, private utilities are are also participating in and uh, in, in what we are trying to show is that um, some things are possible, alternatives are possible to, um, to, to these other big um, projects. So you mentioned a few examples with exchanges in Uruguay and, uh, and other countries. Where has public-public partnership been the most effective? Which project would you say um, has so far been the most effective? I will um, I will mention too. Uh, there was one partnership between this um, public utility in Uruguay called OSE and the public uh, utility in Huancayo, Peru. Uh, um, the utility in Huancayo, Peru, was um, going to be privatized, and the fact that um, this partnership happened and with also community participation. Uh, make possible to stop the process of privatization. I will say that, that in that case was very helpful. The community was um, very happy uh, about the fact that they could they could stop and they could improve their water utility. And um, um, and um, I will say that the other successful one was um, one that we called Urcolbo. Um, um, by, um, name it like that by Uruguay, Colombia, and Bolivia, and um, that involved again this um, uh, water cooperative uh, from from Bolivia and these uh, rural um, water systems from Colombia and also um, the big water utility in, in Uruguay. Uh, that has helped us to. Um, exchange um, experience about the potabilization of water, for example, but also it helped um, uh, to the water utility in Uruguay to understand that there are other ways to manage water because we usually uh, think that um, that the alternatives are just public or private and, uh, and that's it. But um, I think the, 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 the workers of the um, water utility in Uruguay learned that there were other ways to manage water. And that's, for example, through co- water cooperatives or autonomous water systems managed by the community. With respect to the community owning uh, the, the resources, now... Lots of times when we have, you know, a private uh, entity or the corporatized, you know, public entity, they they uh, are sure to, you know, accept all the bills coming in. But then when there are infrastructure problems, they don't seem to put money back into the system to correct the infrastructure. And a lot of water is lost through leakage. So have you seen point when the community gets involved that they are more active in looking at the problems? Uh, of water service delivery and in figuring out how to budget for, uh, you know, infrastructure improvements that are necessary? Well, actually, because these um, these uh, water systems were created by the community and it cost and effort and money and resources to the community, um, people feel completely empowered um, and around them, you know, in and and they feel like that's theirs, you know. It's not money or resources that were put by the state, but it was their effort and their money. And 
and they tend to work harder uh, for how how these utilities are managed. And um, believe me or not, there is a good um, there is a good um, way. Uh, we have found really good examples of these water utilities utilities managed uh, with efficiency. Um, but also with, you know, and those are terms that the World Bank likes very much, the efficiency. Yeah, yeah. Efficiency <laughs> but, oh, for whom? For people that can increase bills for other people, you know? <laughs> yes, but, you know, they, they have managed to, to, to do that, to, to manage their water utilities with efficiency, but also with transparency and uh, participation of the rest of the community. So when we are talking about, um, you know, money that is needed to, to fix leaks or to... Um, to um, expand the water utility, we can see that um, those things come not just through um, through money directly, but comes also from um, you know community work, like the community organize themselves to do to clean the pipes or to clean their water tank or to um, look where the leak is coming or what's happening or if there is an illegal connection to look at that. So there, is, um, there are like brigades or what we call trabajo comunitario, that is this community work that is being done and where everybody has the oblig- obligation to participate. Um, and, and, and it's through these um, internal regulations that um, these um, water utilities are, are working and are improving their, um, their systems. Um, of course, um, always money is needed for, for, for more things, but when it comes, for example, we have these, these water systems in Colombia, and they needed money to improve their water system, and they asked help to the city, and the city said, okay, we're going to give you money, but that means that, that the, the, the system has to pass to our hands. They completely re- rejected the money. They said, no, we don't want that. We prefer our autonomy over, um, you know, over um, giving up what we have built. And they always have, um, they have find ways to do it better. Uh, we have found, um, for example, um, um, water systems that work with uh, um, um, uh, old engine cars to pump the water from one side to the other. There is so much creati- creativity um, on, on the community um, that... Um, you know, it, it really gives me hope about how things can be managed differently. The, the, the weakness of, of, of these um, uh, community-managed systems is that they are tiny. Uh, we cannot be talking about a, a big expansion of them. Uh, and they are um, different one from each other. So what it works for one community may not work for the other community, uh, but it's, you know, there are thousands and thousands of these systems all over Latin America, and, and I'm sure also in the United States that we are not paying attention. Uh, we always put our eyes on the big public utilities, but we don't see these um, tiny um, um, efforts um, by the community. Uh, just to give you an example, in Cochabamba, 60% of the water delivery is it's been done by these autonomous water systems and only 40% by the big public utility. So um, if we look in other parts of 
of Latin America, and I don't know if the studies have been done around this. We're gonna we're gonna see that most of the uh, the water utilities or most of the delivery of water is being done by by autonomous water systems. That's fantastic. And so when we talk about people having access uh, to clean water and sanitation, I mean, there's no better people to control the access and delivery than the people themselves of each community. And when you said before that each community has uh, different needs for their services and delivery, uh, what better people to understand the difference in the community themselves? And also for the future generations, knowing that they, they have control over their own water, which is such, I mean, we can't live without water. We need water. And, and, to, to survive, we, we need, I think, uh, it's uh, 20 to 50 liters a day minimum to survive. Uh, and, you know, it, it's very interesting when you're looking at these top-down approaches because at the international level, we're seeing, oh, you know, the human right to water is very important. Let's legalize this. Let's uh, institutionalize it. But, you know, I wonder whether this will have the same effect as really just providing the community direct control and ownership of their own water because how this approach, we're not really sure how it will filter down. I mean, I'd like your opinion on uh, the constitutional amendment in Uruguay. There was a public push against privatization to have an express clause for uh, the right to water in the constitution. And that was quite a number of years ago. But how does how, how does that apply in practice? I mean, with the with the rights on paper, do people really receive the rights in effect in their communities? Um, well, what happened in Uruguay, um, it, 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 you know, we consider uh, um, another um, historical event on, on the struggle for water because it came Cochabamba first in, in 2000 and then and with people hurted on the streets, you know, with police on the streets. But what happened in Uruguay was um, was a victory that was um, gained on the on, on you know in a in a peaceful way. Let's call it like that. And um and it helped the and also, you know, we cannot separate I think um the water issues in our countries from from other bigger political events. So at the same time the different the Amblu in Uruguay won the elections so it passed this uh, referendum to include water on the constitution. Um, the the funny thing is that once the Frente Ampli was in power, they were like uh, saying they were trying to um, not apply um, this this um, the, the this amendment in the constitution, and it was people organized it again that had to push the new government uh, in order for them to take action. And it helped in Uruguay to kick out a corporation that was operating in certain areas of Uruguay. Um, the Uruguayans were very um, pushy about it, saying our new constitution says that, and you have to you have to do it. So I think it helped them on on, on that level um, to you know to say whether it should be. Uh, managed and, and uh, should be in, in public hands, but um, I also see like um, that that's not enough, and, or, or that wasn't enough right now. And in Uruguay, uh, there has been um, uh, a lot of um, new policies from the uh, from the government, and where um, again water is being used um, for uh, the creation of. Um, 
meal um how do you call that the those um to to make paper i don't know how you oh paper mills paper mills yeah for example or they are starting to talk about fracking or they are doing also mining there so water again is being used for this um for these industries rather than um for for the people uh in in uruguay around 98 of the population have access to water and that has been for years something uh that we have taken as a flag saying you know look at uruguay um this company is providing um um water to almost everybody and even in rural areas they have uh, they have implemented that system to deliver water there. But now uh, what we're seeing in Uruguay is that um, there's a contamination of the water sources, for example, due these industries that are operating there. So the main river that provides water uh, to the country, that is the Santa Lucia River, uh, it's been polluted. And so no longer the water that Uruguayans um, have, it's drinkable. Um, uh, as far as I know, Uruguay uh, was the only place where in Latin America where you could just drink water from the tap, and that's that's not uh, possible um, again um, now, right now, um, on 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 the last years because they have found uh, stuff. So again, you know, the people are are not dismobilized there. They didn't think that putting that in the constitution was enough. And they know that they have to be pushing for um, their government um, to um, to do what it's written. So um, to me, it's um, you know legislation and conventions and declarations are always tools, but uh, it's up to us to make those tools become um, real and to. Um, to operate uh, in the real life because no one is going to do it for ourselves. The governments do not um, do these things um, just in good faith. It has been always um, the organized community that had to be pushing for the implementation of, of these very progressive tools we have in our country. So in Uruguay, again, uh, it was one on the paper and, uh, and it's still been a, you know, I struggle to keep it, um, to keep it real. Right, write some paper only as good as the ability to effectuate them. Grassroots action is needed for results. Speaking of grassroots action, I want to go back to Bechtel. Now, I know you said the winning against Bechtel in Cochabamba was more of a Pyrrhic victory because privatization of water services continues throughout South America and the world, but it gives people hope and it shows what we can achieve when we unite. I do want to mention another um, episode with Bechtel. It was the, the second battle, but a petition was filed in August 2002 to open the proceedings to the public, and it was brought on behalf of citizens groups in Bolivia. Now, unfortunately, the petition was unsuccessful, So, but we know that this realm in this court system is biased towards corporations anyway, but the grassroots action put so much pressure on Bechtel that they ended up settling for an extremely nominal sum. Now, I know this is just one instance, but if we can learn from this public pressure, this grassroots pressure against corporations, it seems that, you know, we win. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, several things about that. I think what happened in Cochabamba, um, perhaps we didn't achieve 
um, too much in relationship to water, but we had um, a, a huge achievement on political terms. What happened there completely changed the uh, political scenario in Bolivia, and I think the rest of the um, Latin America or the world uh, in relationship to water and that, um, you know, sending outside the message that it's possible to win. Um, and all of these happen uh, in the middle of, um, and some people consider what happened in Cochabamba as the first um, victory against um, um, the neoliberal um, uh, policies. And you know, again, um, what what happened um, in this second battle against Bechtel, in, in, and he was such a, a grassroots uh, movement, not just by the Cochabambinos on that time, because I think we, we couldn't do too much once we were in, in, in Bolivia, but it was so, there was so much solidarity from people uh, across the globe. Um, people in San Francisco mainly, or in the Bay Area, who mobilized because the Bechtel headquarters was in, in, in San Francisco on that time. And it was, um, as you said, all this public pressure that um, made possible for uh, Bechtel to, you know, to arrive to a point when they were so tired of the um, bad um, public image they had that decided to settle. And, and again, you know, when you talk about these, these courts like the, the one at the World Bank, um, they are actually not even all of what you mentioned, but it's just like three people deciding the future of the, of the, um, of the whole, uh, you know, a whole case. It's just three people. So we fought um, in order to have a voice there. We thought that um, the people in Cochabamba should have a voice there, and they denied that. Uh, but we also did pickets at, um, on, 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 on Washington, D.C., at the house of Michael Curtin, whom, whom in that time was um, president of the, um, the consortium in Cochabamba, for example. We knew he lived there, so we went to his house and we started to um, handle um, you know, information about who he was to his neighborhoods and to tell people what he has done in Bolivia. And some of them, they couldn't believe that that nice guy that used to live in their condo was that awful guy who came to privatize the water in, in Cochabamba. Anyway, we, there were so many actions, again, all over the, um, all over the world, I would say. Uh, people in Holland also uh, picked the bank and, um, and that Bechtel used it. Um, and it was it was this um, massive um, uh, action that helped Bolivians to win once more and to, in certain way, to show the the um, people who were looking at this case in that moment how unfair uh, these uh, international s s courts or settlement um, institutions are and. Um, and since then, um, um, we have uh, the Bolivian government has withdrawn the exit, the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, and we have uh, left uh, that place saying this is a this is not a, a fair space where uh, these disputes can be solved, um, and and we're not longer going to participate on them. And I think we should. That's what we have to be doing. It's not. It's to shame um, these organizations, the people who are behind them, um, around how how awful these organizations are.
Right, I agree. Now, I just wanted to uh, point out, so you said the arbitration or the, the settlement dispute was settled by three people. It was to be decided by three people. Now, I just want um, our listeners to understand that the three people uh, were, so, so the system is that the country picks a person, the corporation picks a person, and then the World Bank picks a person. And it is meant to be neutral. However, it's the World Bank that was pushing these privatization policies in the first place. So it's, you know, not that neutral. And if they weren't afraid of public opinion, then they would have it um, open to the public, like all court systems should be. And also, it might be instructive to know that this closed arbitration system will be the dispute settlement system for the member states of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That is just something I wanted to point out so people understand because there is not much public attention on these settlement investment disputes, but they're really quite undemocratic because at times public pressure can exert what the law cannot. One example is when we have a corporation hide behind the legal fiction of the independent nature of a subsidiary in order not to pay out claims for injuries and environmental damage. For instance, what happened in Bhopal, India, the night of December 2, 1984, with the horrific gas leak from a union carbide plant that continues to harm the people and environment today. In the Bechtel suit against Bolivia, which we were just discussing, the company at issue was a subsidiary. So indubitably, if there were an incident, Bechtel would claim it had no legal liability because it is a separate legal entity from its subsidiary. And yet, (laughs) Bechtel still claimed damages from the loss of its subsidiary's contract in Cochabamba, it claimed $25 million in damages and $25 million in lost profits. So, <laughs> you know, the profits flow, but not the liability. So public shaming is, is very, very important and has been effective um, with, with respect to that. Now, I know you, you said uh, before that you, not- you established Red Vida because you noticed there was a lot of North-South cooperation, but not a lot of South-South cooperation. In terms of public shaming corporations that are headquartered in the northern countries, what is the importance of the collaboration between the different grassroots movements um, in order to shame corporations? Well, it, it, it is key, I will say, to establish... Um, Establish links of solidarity among us, um, and uh, and I think um, if we, without those, um, without that that type of solidarity, will be uh, very hard to advance in, in in some issues. So you know what what happened in in Bolivia was just a little example of what solidarity can 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 do and can make. It took years. It wasn't. It wasn't months. It took um, several years in the persistence of people, and at the end, we we made something possible. So that that slogan that sometimes we uh, listen on our, on, on our mobilizations that that says um, the people united will never be defeated. It it can be more than a slogan. It can become real. And and that's what the story of Bolivia is telling us. And I'm sure there are other um, hundreds of cases when when it's like that. I remember, for example, um, people getting together um, to denounce Suez, um, this huge um, water corporation also that's based in France. Um, and People got together, and the and Suez was expelled from from most our countries, um, and so it's you know to me solidarity is, is the base of everything, and uh, it can it can it can break um, 
barriers and go across uh, borders and 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 create uh, important links and friendship and and all those uh, those things that uh, make uh, uh, you know make us rebuild the social fabric of social movements. Um, right now, I am in San Francisco, and you know, I I actually came for a personal issue here. But it was because um, the struggle against Bechtel made me create so many friends here in the Bay Area that now I feel like I can come back here and I have a family here and I have friends that are fighting for things here and I can also show solidarity to them. Uh, a year ago, I was also in the area at the Tesoro Corporation uh, showing solidarity to the workers that were uh, on a strike um, there. And, you know, it's... Uh, once they did it for us in Bolivia, and now we're, you know, trying to do um, exactly the same for the for for people here in the United States. Um, so I think it's a two-way uh, path. And when we talk about the North and the South, uh, there's no it, there are stratifications within the North and the South. I mean, for instance, one of the main issues in South America, we talked in the beginning how it's the wettest continent on Earth, and yet it has this. A deficit with respect to people receiving clean water and sanitation. But this has been clearly acknowledged even by um, the UNDP in a report in 2006 that this is not due to a lack of resources, but due to extreme income inequality in South America. And when we talk about different, you know, developing countries, developed countries, the North and the South, this income inequality, this economic stratification, and also Democratic deficits exists within all countries. You just talked about solidarity. People from the Bay Area were helping people in Cochabamba. People from Cochabamba were helping people in the Bay Area. Uh, it's not, you know, it's a battle that's worldwide. I mean, we just saw uh, earlier last year how um, people in Flint, Michigan, where uh, when their water was privatized, um, were poisoned by lead in their water and uh, Detroit, when de- the Detroit uh, system was privatized, people were kicked off <laughs> yeah. uh, for very, you know, little sums in areas as, as little as $150. So it's, it's a worldwide issue. And, you know, the more people see their interests aligned um, between countries and the more solidarity there is between people, between countries, uh, against, you know, possibly very undemocratic governments uh, that... Uh, are tied to multinational corporations and their interests, the more that the people together, as you said, the people united uh, cannot be defeated. The problem is that we still have, I think, a lot more to do to create this solidarity between all people across the world. Um, And that, I guess, is something that we need to work on for the future, like your organization is doing. Yes, I, I... To me, it's like um, I do not trust too much governments because the governments change one day or another. So I, I do, and people are always there. So, you know, whatever we can do in order to build those those links among ourselves, it's what is going to make the difference it's, and it's going to change uh, the situation. Um, governments are there, are they are, are doing their job. There are efforts to create um, a solidarity among among the states, among the governments and among the countries. And if that's happening, well, you know, we, we're 
I think we have to support that and say good that this is happening. But to me, what it will always be um, uh, the base um, is, is, you know, the solidarity that we can create among, among ourselves, the, the ordinary people. That's what it will stay. I agree. Now, just going back to the situation in Bolivia currently, and before you talked about um, mineral extraction and how it's contaminating the water. Now, it seems there was a lot of hope for Morales when he when he took office, but the government is, and, and in their point of view, the more that they uh, sell and export, the more that I guess they have for um, the people to use. Now, whether they're doing that or not, um, you know, I'll ask you. I'm not sure about that. But I do know that the extraction has been, I mean, it's been ridiculous. I believe they've extracted more silver than the Spanish did in 300 years. And now they're looking at these lithium deposits in, in pristine areas that haven't been touched before. So, so how is the water situation in Bolivia with respect to this extraction of mineral resources? It's very hard. <laughs> it's very, very tough um, for Bolivians right now because all our um, economy is based on extraction. And, and when, when these things happen, when you know, the economy is based on, on, on something that is so bad for the environment, you know, people are also expendable. Um, and I know that the speech is um, different from from the neoliberal area, you know, when, when era, when, when they were the neoliberal governments were talking about extraction and doing all those policies, um, we know where they were heading up and we, we know, we knew exactly, uh, what they meant for that. But with these progressive governments in the region, um, you know, the, 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 um, the speech, the, uh, rhetoric, uh, around around that is completely different, and but the results are exactly the same than than from previous governments. You know, it's it's extraction is so central to financial stability of these governments that you know it's it's hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, so many people are the gov- our government opened in some national parks uh, for exploration of oil and gas. Um, and uh, this is going to mean uh, the displacement of indigenous peoples from their territories. And, uh, and it will mean more conflicts in, in, in Bolivia. There have been already um, several uh, conflicts there uh, around, around the national parks and uh, highway that our government wanted to build uh, in 2000. 11, 2012, and that the government is still pushing for that. So we just think that there, there are going to be more, more conflicts um, related to water and, and, and the way that, um, you know, our governments are, are acting uh, in relationship to um, the economy and, and what to do for that. So it's, you know, I just see problems in the horizon but at the same time I see that uh, people are um, somehow organized and and they're gonna be uh, fighting so what is the hope for the future I think it's very <laughs> I was just talking about this last night with a friend um, and and you know we got a point when we we sort of uh, s- 
see the, the horizon kind of dark for us. You know, we're uh, so many, many uh, things are happening in the world that are, are not good. But I think we have to keep the faith on the people and ourselves in that. Uh, and again, you know, when, whenever we are united, many, many things can happen and it's possible to revert things. That's the story of, that's the lesson that Cochabamba left us, um, that it's always possible to win uh, when things are already, you know, the, the, the water tea, tea was already privatized, the law passed, and we could revert those things. So... Uh, on, on dark times, when when we see things very dark, that, uh, that's what I, what I wanna wanna think about it. That that uh, it's possible to win, and there's no uh, fatal destiny or or uh, um, um, written fate about about um, about what's going on in the world. Right, and if we're apathetic, we've we've lost the battle already. Yes, but you know there are so many um, communities organizing the game, and I feel that every time that I I go to United States, I see communities that are uh, organizing around something, and and sometimes it's very hard to see that because the m- mainstream media do not talk about that. You know, we what we saw on TV or what we hear on the radio is so depressing that. Um, we don't we don't see that there are efforts by communities that um, you know these community gardens uh, emerging everywhere and, and people trying to make their own food or talking about um, uh, harvesting water. I think we have to focus on these positive stories and these little victories because that's the only way that we can you know keep going ahead and yeah and not backwards. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Marcella. I very much appreciate your insight into this very important issue and the work that your organization is doing. Thank you, Alexandra. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.